Welcome to Smart Sex, Smart Love, where talking about sex goes beyond the taboo and talking about love goes beyond the honeymoon. Today, the podcast title is Sex, Shame, and Sin. Um, my guest today is Dr. Josh Grubbs, a clinical psychologist and associate professor in the clinical psychology PhD program at Bowling Green State University, where he directs the, the Sparta Research Lab. Dr. Grubbs is an internationally recognized expert on behavioral addictions and a leading scientific voice in discussions about pornography use and its effects. To date, Dr. Grubbs has published over 100 peer-reviewed articles on topics related to pornography use, sexuality, behavioral addictions, religion, and morality, and has received over $1 million in funding for his scientific works. Welcome, Josh. I'm so happy to have you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm a huge fan, so it's huge that you're sitting across <laughs> from me. I've never really you know, had an interaction with you, but I read all your stuff, and I re refer to your work all the time in pretty much everything I do. So I'm glad to have you here and to inform the public about what, what we could talk about today. Yeah, definitely. Looking forward to sharing. All right. Well, let's get started. Um, what do we know about the current state of research about the so-called sex addiction arena? Yeah, so this is, um, you know, a hot topic. I, I'm obviously very interested in it. Um, but the research domain around what we might be called sex addiction, and I want to clarify, sex addiction is not necessarily a diagnosis in any manual. There's not a psychiatrist or psychologist that's, you know, paying attention to the research that would say that sex addiction is a diagnosis. But, but research around some things that we might consider close to sex addiction um, has been exploding recently. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of articles in the past couple of years alone, lots of research studies. But importantly, most of it is pointing towards this very nuanced understanding of it, of sex and sex addiction. So not just that, oh, you know, sex addiction is X, Y, and Z. It's more of, well, we think that there's a disorder possibly called compulsive sexual behavior disorder. It may be an addiction, but it's probably not. And uh, it, it matters in some cases, but there's all these other complicated things going on. So we know a lot, but we also, the more we know, the more we realize we don't know as much as we need to know. Yeah, and that's the thing. And people don't understand that the that the actual name sex addiction is culturally made. It was not, yes. it's never been in any manuals or anything statistically uh, valid. That's correct. Yeah, we don't. That's not recognized um, right now. If someone came to seek treatment for out of control sexual behaviors, there are diagnoses we could try to apply, um, but sex addiction wouldn't be one of them. And at the end of the day, conceptualizing their behavior and treating it just like an addiction, the same way I might treat opioids uh, or alcoholism or something like that, it, it's it just doesn't work. The frameworks don't really work that nicely together. It really seemed to work though. So I've been, I don't know if you know this, I was a sex addiction therapist for a long mm -hmm. time. I even identified as one and it was the eighties. And so AIDS was rampant at the time. Mm -hmm. And we didn't know if it was like COVID back then in the sense that we didn't know what was going on, how you got it. it was, and it was a gay right. disease. It was a whole thing that we called a gay disease. So um, I remember though, that sex, the, uh, the popularity of addictionology was really popular at the time with mm -hmm. chemicals and eating disorders and sex just rode that right wave and everyone just went, okay, this is anecdotal, but it makes sense. But mm -hmm. now today, I love when you say there's all this research being done because the more research I did and more training I got more than anything was the fact that sex addiction doesn't, is not informed around sexual health or sex therapy. So it doesn't know what it really, sometimes I just want to say it doesn't know what it's talking about. It's like a church talking about sex. They don't know what they're yeah, talking about. 
Yeah, there and and that I mean I think that's fair. This notion, I mean, I think for for generations, I mean, not even generations, literally millennia, we've acknowledged sometimes some people get out of control in their sexual behavior. There are some people that do not seem to have any semblance of control over what's going on sexually, whether that's with partners or in more recent years as pornography has developed more that they can't seem to regulate what's going on. But you know, it's important to realize that not every problem with self-control, not every problem with regulation, not every problem that we face is an addiction. So an example I often use is, you know, many mornings um, I tell myself I need to be out of bed at X point in time and I find myself pressing snooze. I don't want to press snooze. I know that pressing snooze is going to make my life more stressful. I know that pressing snooze is going to get in the way. And yet every morning, not every morning, almost every morning, I end up pressing snooze more than I should. Am I addicted to my snooze button? And most intellectually honest people are going to say that, yeah, no, you're not addicted to your snooze button. You've got other stuff going on that's leading you to that behavior. The behavior is not addictive. You're tired. You're, you just struggle. You're not a morning person. Or in my case, I have small children <laughs> that leave me exhausted and have probably gotten me up twice before at some point before that time. So like that kind of experience in that analogy, it's not a perfect one, but it demonstrates that just because you're doing a behavior more than you want to be. Just because you're engaging with the behavior in a way that's causing problems, it doesn't have to be an addiction. It can be other things, and it can still be a real problem. I mean, this is one of the huge things I'm always trying to tell people. I'm not saying your problems aren't real. I'm just saying addiction's not going to get you to the help that you need. Right. That's what I like you to say, because people do say that to me, too. Then they think that I'm dismissing that this isn't an issue. I'm like, no, it's just what you call And then, you know, some people, even in the sex addiction community, they'll say it doesn't matter what you call it. That's like going to your doctor and he's like, ah, we're not going to try to name what you have. Whatever. We'll throw whatever we can. Maybe radiation, maybe chemo. Maybe we'll even take out your kidney. I don't know. But we'll just see. We're, no name. That's ridiculous. You need to have a name so you know how to treat it, right? Right. Well, certainly. I mean, I think names matter a lot. And it also, when you think about how much the word addiction carries often identity markers with it, and for good or for bad, societally, we stigmatize mental illness, which is for bad, but um, for, we also tend to place a lot of identity around people that deal with addiction. And what I mean by that is, you know, think about 12-step programs. When you, you go to a, an AA meeting, you say, hi, I'm such and such, and I'm an alcoholic. Like, it's literally part of your identity is this addiction. And again, if you're mislabeling yourself as having an addiction that doesn't exist, um, and then also mislabeling the cause of the behaviors you're dealing with, you're taking on a stigmatizing identity or stigmatized identity that you may not need to, that is not pushing you towards the treatments that you might need to recover. Because if, if you are dealing, and we probably will talk a little bit about this in a minute, but oftentimes if you try to treat an addiction that's not actually an addiction, you might make the behavior worse because you, you end up exacerbating the anxiety around the behavior itself. I love that. Oh, my God, that's so good. you want to say more about that? Or Well, so this is something I, I often see. I um, mean, again, we'll probably talk a little bit more about this, is someone will come in, typically a, a young man who will say, I feel like I'm addicted to pornography. And you find out they're ver viewing pornography very rarely, but there's a lot of guilt about it, typically coming from religious kind of shame and scruples. Most most monotheistic religions have pretty strong prohibitions against pornography use, especially in the U.S. So say it's a guy, this will say he's an evangelical Christian in his 20s. He, I'm addicted to porn. I'm viewing it once a week. It's ruining my life. I'm addicted. Well, focusing on an addiction framework where I say, all right, so we're going to structure your entire life about avoiding relapse to porn means that he's spending all of his time 
thinking about porn and how not to use it, which paradoxically means that he's always thinking about the one behavior that he's wanting to reduce. Now, you know, there's multiple treatment avenues you can take with something like this. Part of it is reducing shame and stigma. But if his values say, I don't want to view porn, what I'm not going to do is tell him, all right, here's how you build safeguards against porn. What I'm going to tell him to do is like, all right, well, let's talk about what your actual values are, what what lifestyle you want to live, and how can we do that in a healthy way so that you're filling your mind and your time with things instead of just structuring your entire life about avoiding this one behavior. Because again, hyper-focusing on that one avoidance behavior is going to lead you right back to that behavior or to major mental health problems in your efforts to avoid it. I really like that. But what if they say, because they say this in my office all the time, well, the healthy lifestyle I want for my recovery or for my religion or for my relationship is not to view porn at all. But I can't. So, and then that's, you know, that's the type of thing that we have to talk about, you know? So like, it's this balance between respecting the client. And this is the hard part about being a therapist. Sometimes you have to respect the client's values while also thinking about what is realistic and also what's healthy. Um, And so, the big things in those situations that we focus on um, are identifying not what you don't want to be, but more what you do want to be. So when you're saying you don't want to view porn, okay, that's fine. I want to know what you do want to be doing with mm-hmm. time, who you do want to be. And then if there are times that you do view pornography, how do we take that time and not say, oh, yeah, go run willy-nilly with it, have fun, just scrap your faith and move on. Uh, but how do you take it and look at it and say, okay – that was not consistent with how I think I want to live. All right, I'm going to I'm going to learn from this moment. I'm going to accept this moment, but I'm not going to feel ashamed of it. I'm not going to feel guilty about it. I'm just going to move on. And so there's this balance. And it's tricky. I mean, because again, oftentimes I see clients who, whose sexual value set is substantially more conservative than my own and how I might want to treat them and how I feel like I can only ethically treat them can sometimes be a little bit intention intention. Cause you know, again, I, I don't think it's right to tell someone change your religion, but I also don't think it's right to say, well, give in to all of those unhealthy things about your religion too. So it's this balancing act, if you will. Yep. Thank you. And let me ask you directly. Do you think porn can be an addiction? An addiction? No, no. Um, do I think that it can be out of control that someone could be using porn excessively in ways that harm their life, that they could have, consequences because they use porn too much yes do i think it's an addiction no i mean i I think it's most likely if someone is using porn in such a way that it's dysregulated and is kind of ruining their life it's probably a symptom of something else going on um it's a nice way to escape from other negative emotions um so maybe ptsd that's untreated maybe extreme anxiety that's untreated maybe social anxiety around relationships that's untreated but an addiction, I just, I don't, I have not seen evidence that convinces me of that yet. Now, if that evidence were to emerge, I would accept it, but I have not seen it yet. I love that. And that's what I like about you. You're very good at looking at both sides. And I agree with you. I feel the same way. One of the best arguments or the best things you talk about is just moral incongruence. Can you mm-hmm. talk about that and how that applies to sex or porn addiction? Yeah. So this is one of my big research areas. This is one of the things that I've really developed over the years is this idea that, perhaps one of the reasons so many people think they have problems with pornography use is related to this phenomenon we call moral incongruence. And moral incongruence is a fancy psychology $10 word that we use to just say when you're viewing porn, but you think it's morally wrong, right? So it's just, I think this is bad. This violates my beliefs, my values, my religion, whatever it is. I think porn is bad, but yet I'm viewing it. That experience together is moral incongruence. And so what we find in a lot of studies 
is that moral incongruence, viewing pornography while disapproving of it, is the most powerful predictor of whether or not you think you're addicted. Mm. And that says something, right? So I, I would not expect, you know, if I went to someone who was, you know, dealing with an opioid addiction, I, I would not expect how much they morally disapprove of heroin to predict how addicted they are to heroin. Like they're, they're, those don't actually make a lot of sense together. But for some reason, you know, pornography, sexual behavior more broadly, in fact, seems to be really tied into morals and values in a way that if you're violating your values and engaging in a behavior, you're more likely to think there's something wrong with you. And addiction is a good framework for that for a lot of people. They're like, oh, yeah, something's wrong with me. I do this thing that I feel bad about. I must have an addiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of people do that. And you, you remind me of the quote out there that and I use it all the time. When you go to war with your sexuality, you will lose and cause mm -hmm. more chaos in your life than when you started. I love yeah. that. That's what you're saying. Yeah, uh, undoubtedly. I mean, and that's the I mean, this is one of the things that we in therapeutic settings and, and when I get talks on this is understanding, you know, when you're calling this an addiction, you're basically saying person, your natural inborn sexual drive, which is literally part of how we evolved as a species, is an addiction. Like That's what you're telling people. And that doesn't make a lot of sense. Like if we all got rid of our sex drive, um, I mean, I guess technically we have the technology now that we could continue the race, but in general, humanity would be doomed, right? And, and so labeling sex drive as an addiction, which is ultimately what a lot of this argument boils down to, sex drive equals addiction, I, I think is just problematic. Uh, in when we understand how humans are supposed to, you know, behave and act in general. What do you think about, and I hope I get her name right, the celebrity Billy Elias, the singer? <laughs> Billy Eilish. Yeah, Eilish, yeah, it's destroyed her brain. Adult movies and porn destroyed her brain. What do you say? You know, I don't doubt that she has experienced some psychological difficulties around her pornography use. Um, and, and I don't want to discount her personal experiences or anything like that. Having said that, that doesn't seem like it could possibly be empirically true for a couple of reasons. One, we just don't have much evidence at all. I mean, any evidence at all that pornography damages the brain. Um, two, I find it hard that one of the most popular, famous, successful musical stars today has a destroyed brain. That that doesn't compute either. I kind of <laughs> think that, you know, she she's doing pretty well for herself. And I mean, having said that, yes, starting viewing pornography at a young age without any sex education that tells you what you're looking at and how it matters and what matters and what to make of it and, and talking about consent and things like that. Yeah, that's not great for kids. I totally agree with that. But the framing of it destroyed my brain is a bit mm, hyperbolic. Yeah, I needed you to say that and wanted people to hear that. <laughs> and, and I've, you know, I've tried to say on social media myself that celebrities aren't mental health experts. They're not no. sexual health experts. She's just talking about her own experience. Right. Secondly, she has such a big voice and name that people say, well, then that's true, right? It's right. Well, I mean, we've seen this over the years. Russell Brand has talked about having a porn addiction. I think uh, Terry Crews, who's another actress, talked about it before. So, yeah, celebrities do this quite frequently. Um and I'm sure they have their own reasons, motivations, and personal issues that they're dealing with. I just, I think it's, you know, celebrities, they're not mental health experts. They're, I, I will never have the musical talent of Billie Eilish. I, it's just not possible. She is a, I'm actually quite familiar with her work. She's a phenomenal vocalist and songwriter along with her, her brother who helps write a lot of her songs. And I respect that. And also, she does not know <laughs> the science of porn addiction or, or porn use or anything like that, so to speak. 
So um, what would you say is, do you think the field of sex research and addiction research need to do to improve our understanding of out-of-control sexual behaviors? Well, I think, you know, we need better research. So we, we wrote a paper last year where we reviewed over 400 studies of so-called sex addiction or hypersexuality or all these other fancy terms we use for it. Um, and what we found was that most of the research is quite bad, <laughs> that it's a lot of very poorly designed studies in college students or online survey takers. And very little of it is looking at things internationally, in adolescents, over time, in sexual and gender minorities, in women. And so essentially, most of the research on sex addiction over the years has been among young white men in the U.S. And so one of the big things we need is more international, bigger longitudinal work that really examines how does sexuality look throughout the lifespan, but also how does, you know, feelings of being out of control, how does that fluctuate over time? And my bet is that a lot of times people feel a little out of control at one point in time, but that it decreases over time. So that's part of it. I mean, a big part is just we need better, longer term, diverse research. I like this. And what I like about our conversation is we're not actually going into good porn, bad porn. You know, I used to be involved in those conversations online mm -hmm. in the sex addiction and people would say how bad porn was and, and how it's not used. And I'm like, well, well wait a minute. Gay and lesbian couples don't uh, fight over porn. And actually, um, no woman is harmed. And, you know, there's a lot of women that are harmed in porn, but no woman is harmed in gay male porn. You know what I mean? Right. We can't yeah. make blanket statements about porn. No, and, and you certainly can't. And so this is the thing, like, is there porn out there that definitely um, promotes non-consensual, violent sexual acts? Absolutely, that porn exists. Is there porn out there that promotes loving, consensual, gentle, caring um, sexuality? Yes, there is. Is there porn out there that promotes consensual BDSM? Absolutely. Like, and so it's a whole spectrum. And so saying good porn, bad porn, it doesn't categorically make sense. It, it, the content that's there and the values associated with it, I think, matter quite a lot. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I do appreciate a nuanced conversation that doesn't try to label which part's good, which part's bad or, or things like that. Do you plan? I know you've written a lot of articles. What about a book, like a book for the layman? Do you plan on doing yeah, that? I do. I do. I I have a proposal that I'm working through now um, that I'm, I've been behind on because of the grant related stuff. But we're, we're hoping to write a book in the next couple of years on um, promiscuous addiction. And, and so that won't be the title, but essentially how the addiction terminology in particular has gotten very flippant in recent years and how that actually stigmatizes behaviors that don't need to be stigmatized like porn and sex, but also delegitimizes real addictions like heroin and alcoholism. And so it, it will deal with a lot of these topics, but mainly from the addiction side of things. I love it. I can't wait for that book because I think you're a great uh, talking head about this. You're research, you're smart. And, um, you know, I get so many clients that come into my office, particularly couples, mostly uh, mixed sex, heterosexual mm -hmm. couples that are uh, upset. And it's usually the woman that's upset with what her man is looking at. And, um, and it's, it's really what it's bringing up for both of them. And so I have my work cut out for me when they come in, but they mm -hmm. really prefer, particularly the distressed partner that they call it sex addiction. It's the low hanging fruit. Let's just call it that what it is. It's his problem. He needs to be fixed and then we can move on. And that's just not how it works. Yeah. I mean, I, I've had that experience more than once. I don't do a lot of couples work, but I've seen many, many often men in, in heterosexual relationships in in therapy, and then that's what it is. They're they're trying to get to to treat an addiction that's not actually an addiction, and when the real problem is is based in the couple's work. I've so many of them. I've ended up having to refer like 
there needs to be couples therapy here, guys, because this is this I can't fix I can't fix you. One, there's nothing to fix. But right. like like even if there was, that's not going to actually address the problem that's bringing you here. I like what you said. It's couples therapy, period. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. What else before we come to an end that we didn't get to that you w- wanted to make sure, you know, when I get on this podcast, I want to make sure we talk about. Well, no, one big thing. So I mentioned we need more international research. So I think I've given you guys a link. There is an international sex survey. It's an international study um, in 45 countries being led by some researchers that are good friends of mine really delving into these topics. So if you're a listener and you want to contribute to the science of understanding sexuality and, and pornography use and things like that, this that the link to the international sex survey is a great place to start. Yeah. Um, and other than that, you know, I, I'm happy to be here. You guys can always find me on the internet um, at my website is www.joshuagrubbsphd.com and you can find me on Twitter at joshuagrubbsphd as well. Please, please, please go to his stuff. I read it every day. I love it. I learn from it. I retweet it as much as I can or I, I, I'm always quoting you. I'm just so happy to have you here. Thank you, Josh. Definitely. And if anyone wants copies of my works, it, I know academic articles can be hard to get your hands on. You can always look up my information like I just said and send me a message. I will email you a copy for free gladly, okay? Very nice of you because you have to be a millionaire to afford those articles <laughs> it's academic publishing man i will get you a free copy if you want it. you let me know all right <laughs> thank you so much and i want to thank all my listeners for joining us on smart sex smart love and you can find us on smartsexsmartlove.com and also follow me on twitter tiktok instagram facebook and my my handle is at dr joe court d-r-j-o-e-k-o-r-t and uh, you can also find me at my website joecourt.com Thank you, everyone. Stay safe, stay healthy, and see you next time.